Okay, uh, welcome everybody to uh, Birkbeck and uh, to the Paris Institute who are jointly sponsoring this event. Um, I also want to say that uh, Birkbeck Department of Politics itself has two research groups which are relevant to uh, this evening's talk, one on uh, population, uh, environment and resources and its relationship to politics, and the other on British politics and public policy. Um, so this is part of an ongoing series of talks sponsored by the Birkbeck Department of Politics. Now, the uh, tragic events of the 13th of November couldn't have been anticipated at the time this talk was conceived, but of course are very relevant to tonight's event, and we'll hear from one of the panel members who was actually there, uh, not in the particular place the attack took place, but very close by, so that will give a certain poignancy to things. Um, however, though relevant to the to this de debate, what really motivated this topic was the desire to understand and debate Europe's response to the dramatic rise in uh, refugee flows along its Mediterranean frontier. And it grew out of my interest in the intersection of population and politics. And population in the sense of migration and differences in fertility rates between ethnic groups and how that affects politics. In particular, the role of ethnic change and its impact on national identity in Europe, uh, and in particular Western Europe. Um, and I should mention just briefly for those who are interested, um, the Association for the Study of Ethnicity and Nationalism, uh, of which I'm a vice president based at LSE, is holding a conference in April on um, nationalism, migration, and population change. And there are some calls for papers which are over by the uh, the reception desk. I encourage you to pick one up. Okay, uh, now to this evening's event, uh, and just background, which you know, unless you've been living in a cave, you're you're going to be aware of the fact that uh, there has been something, a, a massive increase, of course, in asylum claims in Europe over the past year. Eight hundred thousand alone in Germany. And according to the BBC website, as many as 3 million by the end of 2017. Of course, we don't know whether that'll materialize. But if so, it certainly presents a challenge to European societies, to national identities in European societies. The intention of this talk, then, is to combine both an empirical focus uh, from three political scientists, Matt Goodwin, Daphne, and myself, Daphne Helikiopoulou and myself, on uh, the impact of migration and the migrant crisis on the populist right with a policy and ethical debate between uh, David Goodhart um, and Chris Bertram on the question of what ought we to do, what ought to be the appropriate public policy response from Europe, from Britain, to the crisis. Uh, so I've talked for long enough, and without further ado, I want to introduce Professor David Feldman, director of the Pears Institute for the Study of Anti-Semitism here at Berkeley. Uh, thanks, um, Eric. Um, uh, it's a pleasure um, uh, to be able to um, um, hang on to Eric's coattails, really, um, uh, uh, as director of the Pears Institute. Um, Eric and the politics department who have taken the lead in organizing this event uh, this evening. I emphasize Eric's organizational role because he, he's given us a very tight timetable for speakers. And um, it means that as chair, 
I may be forced to exhibit some of the characteristics of the authoritarian personality, which some uh, social scientists would say would lead me to uh, vote for a party such as UKIP. Um, at any rate, let me, uh, the, um, as Eric explained, the um, evening's um, the speaker's contributions will fall into um, um, two parts. The first part dealing with the migrant crisis and the populist right. The second part dealing with ethics and our policy responses uh, to the refugee crisis. So I will first of all introduce the three speakers for the first part of this, um, who will each speak for five minutes. Uh, um, first, we'll hear from Matthew Goodwin from the University of Kent. He's the author of two books on, on, on UKIP, Revolt on the Right, <coughs> Explaining Support for the Radical Right in Britain, um, uh, written with uh, Rob Ford and published in 2014. And upcoming is UKIP Inside the Campaign to Redraw the Map of UK Politics. Next, we'll hear from um, Eric, Eric Kaufman from Birkbeck, who's the co-author of Changing Places, The White British Response to Ethnic Change in Britain, and is co-editor of uh, uh, Political Demography and author of Shall the Religious Inherit the Earth? Then we shall hear fr from uh, um, Daphne um, um, Halikiopoulou from the University of Reading, who is the co-author of Golden Dawn's Nationalist Solution, explaining the rise of the far right in Greece. So, Matthew, you have yep. five minutes, and the <laughs> clock is almost ticking. God, no pressure. OK. Um, you'll be happy to know my next book is not on UKIP. Uh, it's on something else. So, uh, OK. I've been told to talk for five minutes, um, but I wasn't told how to bring up my slides. Um, I might need some assistance. So stop the clock, please. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Don't worry, this doesn't count against your time. So much pressure. Um, okay. Eric uh, sort of asked me along to set the political context for the uh, discussion um, and to really dig around in the data and look at what's going on right now rather than what was going on a year ago. Um, I put my Twitter up there because there's nothing worse than somebody throwing lots of data at you and you can't quite make sense of all of it. So. What I was going to do is just put all the slides out tomorrow, and then you can chew on them at your own leisure, um, or, 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 or not, as you prefer. Um, this is where we are at the moment. And all I've done here is, in terms of looking at the populist right, is simply looked at their vote shares at the most recent election. And that election is prior to the uh, refugee crisis. So for example, I haven't looked at elections you know, over the last month. Uh, and then I've taken their current average in the polls this month. Okay, so these are the parties that are actively opposing what's happening in Europe. They want much stricter migration uh, laws. They uh, want uh, much uh, more uh, restrict restrictive asylum laws. And I've just taken some of the usual suspects. And in two cases, France and Hungary, I took the ratings of Marine Le Pen in the presidential. Uh, uh, elections, of course, big elections in 2017 in France, and then uh, for Viktor Orban, his personal approval ratings from the beginning of the year 
having almost doubled, despite the condemnation and so on that he's received in West European states. And the general picture, actually, when you take the big cases, and I haven't taken all of the European countries, but nonetheless is one of, of growth, right, for the populist right. And depending on your political persuasion, this is either horrifying or you know, a fairly sort of straightforward response among certain groups of voters to what's happening uh, in Europe. And uh, that really is a reflection of this, which is the most recent comparative data on public opinion in Europe, taken from the Eurobarometer. And all this is showing you at first is the percentage of voters who have chosen immigration as one of the most important issues facing uh, their particular region. Right? And what's nice about this question is it's about region, not just about Europe. And you can see, as we'd expect, elevated concerns among this corridor where a lot of the migration is happening up into uh, Sweden. But we can also look not just at the picture right now, but how this picture has changed uh, from uh, 2012 to modern uh, to 2015. And this is showing, again, a similar picture but nonetheless uh, one of elevated uh, public anxieties over migration uh, and its effects, in particular in Germany, which of course has uh, been the main receiver, um, but, but also uh, through Central and East European states that uh, have very little experience with um, ethnic diversity, and Ivan Krasiev and others have written really interestingly on the migration crisis and how it's been received in Central and Eastern Europe. So we are seeing very high levels of concern in some countries around this issue, uh, less so uh, in others. What about Britain? What's interesting is that initially, Britain was um, not liberal, but you know, around two-fifths of the population were telling uh, pollsters that they thought we should accept higher numbers of refugees. That was back in September. And the most recent uh, data you can, uh, tells us just how quickly opinion has shifted on this issue um, and support for a more restrictive um, uh, response to the crisis has really uh, come in. Um, the percentage, for example, who are now saying don't let anybody come has nearly doubled to around one in four. And I'd expect, given that this poll in November was pre-Paris, <laughs> Um, I'd expect that trend to continue. And what's, what's also worth noting is that applies, if you look at this question, this is about refugees fleeing war in Syria. Okay, that also applies to refugees fleeing war in other states such as Libya, Iraq or Eritrea. So you've got a fairly consistent picture in Britain. Okay, to what extent is that picture mirrored across European states, don't worry if you can't read, I'll quickly talk you through it. Um, do you think your country should accept more or fewer refugees, immigrants, migrants, people fleeing terror or persecution? And of course, we can all see problems with the categories, but that's the way that, you know, in this case, YouGov decided to, to cut the cookie. And you can see that um, the general picture in Britain, Germany, and France, also Sweden, um, less so in Norway, is one of large numbers, um, in, in most cases majorities, saying that their country should accept fewer of uh, all of those uh, groups. 
Um, slight, perhaps, discrepancy in Britain. We're more liberal uh, towards people <coughs> fleeing war and terror, so I'm not sure exactly where people think refugees and so on are coming from. But nonetheless, it is a general and fairly consistent picture. In terms of what people think is going wrong, uh, how well or badly do you think your country has handled the uh, European refugee crisis? The nice thing here is we've got a comparison between people's countries and their leaders. You see Germany, for example, people are very broadly happy with how Germany's responded, less so with how Merkel in particular has responded. France, this was pre-Paris, very unhappy both with their country and Hollande. In fact, Hollande's ratings are catastrophic before the attacks, and I expect that that will get worse. And a broadly similar picture, one of unhappiness, especially when it comes to leaders. Um, and this is the general direction of travel before I get booted off the, uh, the podium. Are you optimistic or pessimistic about the future of the European Union? This is this year. You can see the general trend. Firstly, people in broad terms, it's net ratings, increasingly less uh, uh, optimistic about the future of the EU, um, which I think is one of its big <coughs> challenges alongside falling levels of trust in the European Union. People are no longer optimistic about the direction of the EU. And similarly, when we track across six countries, increasingly, yep, since the onset of the refugee crisis, which was around about kind of here in terms of mass media, you had a sharp decline in perceptions of uh, their own government doing well. So increasingly dissatisfied, increasingly concerned, anxious about what this crisis is doing to Europe, and that in broad terms is the political context for the uh, remaining discussion. Thanks, Matt. I, I understand from the order I should go next rather than Daphne, so I'll do that. Uh, and it, but now, so I, I probably am going to pick up on a lot of what Matt talked about. Hang on, let me just get the... Right. Um, right. I should say two things. One is that the, we don't have a mic here, so we've got to all project tonight. Uh, the other thing is there is a hashtag for anyone who wants to tweet about this. Uh, this is really the, uh, the you know, this is really 2015 here. Uh, it's at, uh, or I know it's hashtag, sorry, BBK migration. So that is the, that is the official hashtag. Uh, okay, so my talk tonight uh, is simply entitled Change Alarms, Stability Disarms. And I'm really trying to take a step back a little bit, and it's also going to be somewhat data intensive, to make the point really that numbers really do matter, that demography really does matter for politics, which is sort of one of these horses I've been riding of political demography. Now, that's not to say that trust in politicians, the economy, you know, newspapers and, and, and the way politicians articulate uh, narratives doesn't matter. I think it does matter a lot. But it's simply to say we often, academics in particular, often forget the importance of demography, such as migration flows or such as differential growth rates of different populations. And I think that is very important. I just want to look here at some data from the US, uh, just to give this a bit of an international comparative context. Um, this line really shows the proportion of the US population that is born outside the United States. And this is the date. This is 1900 to 2010. You can see a high point here around 1910, about 15% of the population being immigrant. Drops to less than 5% by 1970 and goes back up to 
almost where it was in 1910 today. Now, if I were employing the kind of theoretical framework I've employed, we would expect opposition to immigration to be highest here, to drop to here, and to rise again. Broadly speaking, that is what has occurred. Not entirely, but broadly speaking, that is the trend. It's just to sort of remind ourselves that the pace of change really does matter when it comes to uh, the politics of opposition to immigration. The economy doesn't, it's not irrelevant, but certainly here, the Great Depression had very little effect on general op opposition to immigration. Another case, Irish Catholic immigration into Scotland in the period from 1850 onwards. Again, we see this pattern of a rise from the mid-19th century up to a peak in the late 1950s in terms of the share of Catholics in the Scottish population and then a decline. And once again, one would expect a rise in opposition to that immigration, a rise in anti-Catholicism. And we broadly do see that and then a sharp tail off. And again, this is a period in which we see uh, greater intermarriage between Catholics and Protestants and a decline in the pitch of sectarianism in Scotland. Here's just a few snippets from what was going on in the mid-20th century in Scotland. The Church of Scotland, which is of course Protestant, issued a report entitled The Menace of the Irish Race to Our Scottish Nationality. 1923, the novelist John Buchan reports we're losing some of our best race stock by migration and their places being taken essentially by the Irish. And as late as 1952, the Kirk issues another report condemning the Irish Catholics, again, as a compact community of alien origin. Now, this is just to kind of give you a, a sense of the tenor of what's going on in this period. What about now? I'm going to skip ahead. Uh, this is from uh, Bobby Duffy's report, which I recommend from Ipsos Mori. Uh, the red line is, again, numbers. This is net migration figures here, an increase from the early 90s to the late 2000s from very, you know, 50,000 or so up to this 200 to 250,000. We're now over 300,000. Moving alongside that, the proportion of people who say immigration is one of the top issues. And the same thing is recorded in MP's mail, by the way, a separate time series that Ipsos Mori has collected. So this is just to make an argument that opposition to immigration, concern over immigration tracks to, to some extent, or to a large extent, this change uh, this increase in, in migration. I want to show that too in other ways. One is at the local level. Okay, this is, uh, does anyone remember the BNP, um, the British National Party? Okay, well this is just some data from, from UK local elections. 2010 to 12 at ward level, which is about 6,500 population, each of these dots, and they're labeled by their local authority. Um, and this is a measure of the, of the rate of change uh, the rate of increase of the ethnic minority population in a ward, and this is the share of the vote achieved by the BNP. And you can see this is a statistically significant relationship. Areas that had that more rapid ethnic change supported the BNP at higher levels, and of course Barking and Dagenham, where 12 uh, councillors were, BNP councillors were elected, exemplifies that, because Barking had uh, went from about 80, 81% white British in 2001 to less than 50% by 2011. Similar things are going on with UKIP. Uh, UKIP, if you look in the British election study, they asked about who you voted for in the European elections of 2014. And those local authorities where there was no ethnic change, it was 
20% of the white British who said, or the, the probability of a white British person voting UKIP was 0.2. Uh, for those which had the most rapid ethnic change, a 28-point increase, that's gone up over 30%. So again, that increase in the share of the local authority made up of ethnic minorities in the 2000s has an independent effect on people's uh, tendency to vote for UKIP. And that's controlling for a whole host of different um, characteristics, including individuals, class, and income, and so on and so forth. But at the same time, there is kind of a silver, not a silver lining, but there's a counter trend which is important to make use of. So I talked about stability disarming, to some extent, opposition to immigration. And here, this black line shows that as you move from very homogenous local authorities to more diverse ones, actually opposition amongst white British, uh, or sorry, support amongst white British for UKIP goes down. And that's to do, uh, I would argue, with an established ethnic minority presence in the locale. People actually get used to uh, ethnic minorities, and that actually takes some of the edge off their concerns, and so they're less likely to vote UKIP. The same kind of relationship here, if we shift from a local authority to the ward as our unit where we're looking at ethnic change, same relationship. Change produces an increase in support for UKIP. Established levels of ethnic minorities more diverse places, less support for UKIP. And then finally, last slide, absolutely, I don't want to break my own rules here. <laughs> Probability of wanting immigration reduced amongst white UK-born, very large sample. Um, areas there's no ethnic change, 75% want a reduction. Areas where there's rapid ethnic change, 90%. So again, change produces that anxiety, that desire to <coughs> reduce numbers. But look at this, on the other hand, established ethnic minority communities where there is essentially no ethnic diversity, the whites, 85% want immigration reduced, but where there's a 50-50 mix between ethnic minorities and whites, actually that drops considerably. So this idea, the take home here is essentially that change produces anxiety, but over time, those anxieties will fade if there is stability. So that's just it. Okay. Thank you, Eric. very much. I've only got five minutes. So I'm going to be nice and quick. What I would like to do today is present some of the findings of my research. I'll show you some data um, based on some pieces of research, research that I've been doing. Essentially, I want to put forward a proposition that is um, picking up on some of the things that Matt and Eric said, but what I want to do is bring the economy in the discussion. So we heard a lot that um, a lot of increasingly more people are now thinking immigration is key versus, say, the economy. We also heard that, um, you know, it's we tend to, in the study of, of, of the far right, to dichotomize between 
economic explanations and explanations in terms of culture and immigration. Now, what I want to say today is put forward the proposition that we shouldn't make that dichotomy, that actually these two are very interlinked. And my proposition is that what drives far-right party support across Europe is insecurity. In other words, um, what matters is not necessarily the structural data, and I will show you some in a second, but the institutions and how they are able to mitigate the risks and costs of both economic and cultural factors. So, for example, here I've got um, some data. This is the 2014 EP elections. You can see that um, unemployment and this is unemployment data, unemployment and far-right party support do not really correlate. Many countries with f high levels of unemployment didn't vote for the far-right and vice versa. Now, if we also look at this is um, more long-term, if we look at national election data from the year 2000, again, we will see that structural factors, unemployment does not necessarily correlate with the rise of far-right party support. Now, this is also what we've done. This is um, also the case for immigration. These are immigration flows. So it's not perceptions like Matt showed, but these are flows. Now, we have taken the three EP elections, 2004, 2009, and 2014, and measured immigration flow from a year before the actual election to allow um, the effect to be shown. Again, you will see, I haven't um, noted the parties because it would be very uh, very dense, but there is no, it's scattered, there is no correlation with actual immigration flows and the rise of the far right in Europe. However, if you, however, um, interact some structural data with some um, with some institutions and some policies, then you see that they actually start to matter. What we have done here is, again, for across the European Union, all far-right parties in the European Union, we have interacted unemployment with far-right party support. And you will see that unemployment does become significant um, when um, interacted with unemployment benefits. We found that, in fact, when unemployment benefits are more generous, this mitigates the relationship between unemployment and far-right party support. Similarly, um, when employment protection legislation favours workers, this also mitigates their insecurity. This also tends to limit across Europe um, far-right party support. So structural, um, in themselves, structural data may not necessarily matter, but when it comes to um, interaction with institutions, the way institutions mitigate them do matter. Now, how can we make a point about this and the refugee crisis? So as I said, I think that the economy and culture are not separate. Right, so this is some, just to give you an idea how, what a great increase we have had of refugees and asylum um, seekers in Europe. This, we can see that this has also happened um, before, again, when you have, so this was um, probably the collapse of the Soviet Union creating this sort of influx of, of a lot of people. Now, the question is not necessarily what people think um, of the structural data, but how this affects um, the insecurity of voters. So, in in a way, the the migration crisis in my research is got 
a double effect. One is economic, because the way that these parties are capitalizing on, um, on the refugee crisis is these people are going to come in, migrants, refugees, foreigners, and they're going to take our jobs. I'm sure you've all heard of the slogan, British jobs for British workers, or generally, they come in and they want jobs. Not only do they want jobs, but they want access to the welfare state and to welfare provision. So in fact, the refugee crisis has a, a, a huge economic dimension. Do we give access to... Um, to, to support, to, um, to the welfare state. And secondly is the question of terrorism. I, I've been living in Paris because I'm, um, I'm, I'm doing a, a visiting post at the moment and I experienced this and I was watching the news where Marine Le Pen came out constantly and said, you know, we're letting these people in. This is a, a problem for our own safety, for our own security. So the migration crisis has a twofold impact on insecurity. The one is economic and the other is personal safety. And to give on to the, the discussion on policy, I think that the key is Matt's last slide. It's management, crisis management. To what extent can we develop institutions that will be able to mitigate the effect of this crisis on, individual, on the insecurity perceptions of individual voters? Thank you. Well, we've heard three extremely rich and in some ways a, a, a three extremely rich accounts of, if you like, what is, uh, analysing what is, accounts which are in some ways at odds with each other in interesting ways as well. Um, and now we're going to move to uh, different views on, in a sense, what ought to be. Um, before we do so, though, I realise that in my opening remarks, I didn't give you a um, a roadmap of, um, of, of the evening. So I'll just explain that um, in the next section, uh, Chris Birchman and David Goodhart will uh, discuss um, with each other um, for maybe the next um, 25 minutes. But that will then um, give us plenty of time for um, uh, contributions from the audience and responses from um, all of our speakers and uh, which will take us through until about a quarter to eight at which point wine will start to flow um, if blood hasn't flown <laughs> before um, or maybe both but um, uh, let me introduce um, our next um, uh, two speakers first uh, will be Chris Bertram who is Professor of Social and Political Philosophy in the Department of uh, Philosophy at the University of Bristol. He's also a trustee of Bristol Refugee Rights, and he blogs regularly on issues related to migration. He will make an opening statement of about five minutes, and then he'll be followed by David Goodhart, who is a director of the Demos Integration Hub, founder of Prospect magazine and author of The British Dream, Successes and Failures of Post-War Immigration. So I'm um, over to you, Chris. Okay, I thought we were going in the other order, but oh, uh, that's fine. Um, okay, so we're two months now, um, and we saw this on, on some of the slides already, uh, two months since we saw um, all of us, I think, the horrifying picture of Ilan Kurdi, the three-year-old Syrian refugee, 
um, lying dead on that beach in Turkey. And at the time, there was a big you know, upswell of support saying, well, we have to do more um, about this crisis. Um, big increase in donations to refugee charities, um, people volunteering, wanting to do things, calling on politicians to do things, uh, and politicians started to do things. But now after Paris, we've got these very loud calls to do the opposite. Um, we've heard from Nigel Farage, from Marine Le Pen, um, from the new right-wing Polish government, uh, and the same thing's going on in America, clearly. You know, Donald Trump is calling for you know, no Syrian refugees, other Republican candidates calling for the same thing. Um, well, those voices are certainly going to be seductive ones, um, but if they're heeded, they're going to lead to policies which are, going, which are mistaken, in my view, and which are going to be profoundly counterproductive. In the first place, it's very unlikely that clamping down on refugees fleeing terror, fleeing the region, fleeing the Middle East, will prevent acts of terror. Um, if ISIS and other similar organizations want to attack people in Europe, they have plenty of people um, who are already surplus, as it were. The perpetrators um, who've been positively identified from the Paris attacks turned out to be Belgian and French nationals. Um, but the further tightening of the borders won't stop refugees from coming either. Um, it will ensure, however, they come in a more chaotic and dangerous manner. The scenes that shook us in the summer um, were in part at least, um, and this is the case also with the, the mass deaths of refugees that have been in the Mediterranean, not just this year, but in previous years, they're in part the consequence of the securitization of Europe's borders uh, in, response to, um, in response to conflict in the Middle East, also in response to perceived need to, to strengthen those external borders um, because of the free movement Schengen area. Um, but people who wish to escape from desperate circumstances, um, denied the means to travel by safe legal routes, will take more expensive and more dangerous um, illegal routes into Europe. And ultimately, that's what the cause of many of these horrific scenes, these deaths, have been the securitization of the borders. When we clamp down on further, further admissions, um, that's what, what results. It doesn't um, make us more secure. It doesn't stop the flow of people. But it does uh, enrich the people who manufacture surveillance systems, razor wire um, companies that run detention centers. Um, it also helps criminal gangs. It helps them to profit. Um, the arguments over the summer were largely about things like refugee quotas and finding a way to distribute the victims of war and persecution across Europe. Um, but with a few notable exceptions, Europe's commitment to uh, helping refugees was already very inadequate. We just don't do our share. If you look at the distribution of refugees and displaced persons across the planet, 
86% of them um, are in developing countries. They're not in the wealthy countries of Europe and North America. The Prime Minister, the Home Secretary, often tell us, they use this stock phrase over and over, and over again, that Britain has a proud record of helping those fleeing persecutions. Well, it doesn't, in fact. Um, a commitment to settle just 20,000 refugees over five years from a total of four million displaced Syrians rather ought to challenge that self-image. And in fact, um, refugees and asylum seekers make up just 0.24 of a percentage point of the UK's population. Um, I've travelled from Bristol today. Bristol City's uh, ground has 16,600 capacity. Um, if you scale the population to that, the refugees and asylum seekers would be um, about 40 people in the stadium. So effectively, the UK doesn't take, to all intents and purposes, um, refugees and asylum seekers. We do very little. Um, even if we could keep people out, it would be a very foolish thing to do. A friend of mine once made the remark that uh, a refugee camp is an atrocity's way of making a new atrocity in the future. If we, can buy, if we can find people to very poor countries, to refugee camps where their children lack access to education, um, where they can't get on with their lives, ultimately we're storing up great difficulties for ourselves and the rest of the world in the future. We need to provide safe routes to travel from uh, the Middle East uh, to claim asylum. We need to put systems in place where people can be assessed uh, in those countries. Uh, and we need to do more of our share of sustaining the global refugee burden. I'll stop there. Okay, thanks. Um, yeah, I thought I was going to go first, um, and Chris it, was going to follow me. Fault. So um, I, had, I had two contradictory pieces of right. paper. Well, um, well, I, I was going to try and preempt what I thought uh, Chris was going to say, um, and I hadn't been entirely successful on, in that in my comments. But um, but uh, well, I overlap a little bit uh, in my responses to what you have said. Um, on the is and the ought, I mean, I, I'm I'm combining the is and the ought here because I think, uh, broadly speaking, what the what our government is doing is what we should be doing, which is to take some of the most vulnerable people from some of the camps in Turkey, Jordan and Lebanon, but invest heavily in the camps um, close to the conflict zone, uh, camps which in most cases, contrary to what Chris just said, already do have schools and clinics, but make those uh, schools and clinics better, make life in those camps more bearable, allow people to work, as, as has been suggested by Paul Collier. There are all sorts of things we can do to make life better, um, rather than bringing um, what would be um, extremely large numbers of people here if we let everybody in, um, which would not be good for our society or those societies that need rebuilding at some point. Um, so... Um, there, I'm just, just to touch on three broad points. The legal and moral duty, um, the idea that the numbers are trivial and that we've done all this before so we can do it again. Okay, the, the legal and moral duty, yes, of course, in rich countries we do have some legal and moral obligations to those beyond our 
our board as our national club. Uh, we want to and we do help in crisis situations both as individuals and through our government but there are clearly limits to what most people in any way are prepared to do by way of financial support um, and also we want to help in ways that don't make the situation worse. Uh, and I think it's a great shame that our response has had to be framed in many ways by the 1951 Geneva Convention, which designed for entirely different circumstances when only a few dozen or hundreds of, of, um, of uh, asylum seekers were expected to arrive. Uh, those conventions have incidentally been enormously expanded by the EU hum Humanitarian Directive of 2004, which gives anybody who lives in a country where they're in danger of serious harm from either internal or international conflict the right to claim asylum in Europe. I mean, that means that literally hundreds of millions of people could legitimately claim asylum here. Until recently, this was pure gesture politics. It didn't really make any difference. Um, now that the borders uh, of southern and eastern Europe have, have opened up, um, the, these, these things do matter, and we ought to be um, restricting these rights, not increasing them. Um, our, basically, our bluff has been called. Um, and, um, but I think there are two basic underlying problems here. Um, first of all, these regulations are entirely disconnected from political legitimacy. Uh, just to give you an example of the Geneva Convention, in 1967, the original 51 Convention only applied to Europe. 1967, uh, a group of lawyers decided to, at the stroke of a pen, to extend it to the entire world. Nobody was consulted about that. The EU directive, it's true, it would have been passed by um, um, Parliament probably, but I, I don't think there was any debate about it in 2004, and most citizens haven't the, haven't the first clue about it. But the, perhaps the bigger problem here is that we end up focusing our limited emotional and financial resources on the most mobile, not the most vulnerable. Um, and it is precisely the most mobile uh, who tend to be the best educated, the most, most dynamic, most ambitious individuals who are most necessary for rebuilding countries like Syria when the conflict ends, as it eventually will. Um, and the point here is that we have a, a duty to poor and weak societies, not just poor and weak and vulnerable individuals. And when the dominant narrative in a society becomes, especially amongst the best educated, let's get out of here, that society is doomed. And we should do all we can in, this, in rich countries to prevent that becoming the dominant narrative. Places like Eritrea, where 25% of the population uh, live in other countries. <clears throat> and incidentally where people who have left Eritrea go back there on holiday. Um, there are very big questions as to whether Eritrea should be on our um, asylum list or not. Um, the issue of the numbers being tri trivial, well, I think it is true, uh, you know, in a continent of 500 million people, one and a half million people a year does not seem a huge amount. But think of the cumulative effect of that on top of the fact, on top of what one might call the mainstream immigration that we already have in a country like Britain, and the numbers become very quickly very large indeed. I mean, if you think of the European border, the southern and eastern European border now as something like the US-Mexican border, it's worth thinking of the analogy. Mexican immigration didn't really begin until the mid-late 70s, and even then it was only a few hundred thousand a year. It, by 2050, one-third of the US population is going to be of Hispanic origin. 
Have we done it before? Yes, we have, but nothing like on the kind of scale that Chris and supporters of his side of the debate are asking. East African Asians, perhaps 60 or 70,000 came in the end. Uh, rather more Somalis have come in the last few years. We did take a lot of people from the Balkans, but a lot of them went back. You don't go back once you get into Europe if you come from a poor country. I mean, that is the point that people always miss when they say, but look, it's the poor countries that are taking all these people. It is true, but there's a big difference. When people come to Europe from a poor country, they come here permanently, and that is not good for us, and it is not good for the poor countries. Thank you very much. So let me uh, uh, apologise for having got that order <laughs> mixed up. Um, it does mean that David gets the, uh, the uh, um, last word, if not the first word. <laughs> word. Chris. Um, well, I'd like to come back on some of the things that, that David said. I mean, first of all, um, what he said about the conventions. Um, so the 1951 convention, um, David represented um, as you know, a a measure that um, we really didn't expect many people to come and claim asylum under the convention. Uh, but I think it's important to bear in mind the context in which the convention first came into being. The convention first came into being in response to two things. One, the big flows of populations after the Second World War, but also a widespread perception that we had failed shamefully in the pre-war period, in the 1930s. In 1938, Evian Conference, Europe got together, what do we do about all these Jewish refugees? People wrung their hands, they effectively did nothing. A few private individuals did a few things. In North America, the consensus, keep Jeff Jewish refugees out. So it was in response to our failure to respond adequately to a previous crisis that the convention first came into being. 67 protocol um, It's really not true to say this is just lawyers extending this to the rest of the planet. Those countries had to sign up. They had to adopt the protocol. And when David claims that the 2004 directive um, gives just you know, an open door to anybody in a conflict zone, that's simply not true. If we look at how you know, case law, how cases have been decided since the 2004 directive, it's just not true. You have to be in a place with really serious, indiscriminate conflict where um, civilians have kind of no chance of safety to claim under that uh, directive. It's certainly not true that, as, as David put it, hundreds of millions of people could come. After all, the total number of displaced persons, including refugees, in the world is about 59 million at the moment, which is way less than 100 million. So that, that's a serious exaggeration on David's part. Um, David says, well, under the present arrangements, only the most mobile come. Well, that's true. Young, male, mobile people have an advantage when you put massive barriers in the way of them you know, getting to a place of safety. They're the people who are able to do so. But, we should, but it seems to me to be the utmost bad faith uh, of us to say that because only the people who've made it over our barriers have these characteristics, therefore there's an unfairness there. The, the right response to have, it seems to me, is to put in place a system where 
those people who are the most vulnerable and the most persecuted can have mm -hmm. you know, adequate access to, to, a, to a place of safety. Um, I mean, I'm not sure what, in the end, David wants to do with international law. Um, I mean, take, for example, a, um, a persecuted minority. Say the Baha'is in Iran. If, the Baha if a Baha'i from Iran makes it to the UK and wants to put in a claim for asylum, does David want to continue to afford that person rights under the convention to give them the chance to rebuild their lives, or does he want to send them back to um, a place where they, they cannot do so? It seems to me that our duty, uh, our moral duty, is to uh, continue to offer a place of safety and refuge to persecuted minorities like that. Fine. Um, okay, well, Chris has focused mainly on the legal uh, aspect. Um, uh, I mean, I said only theoretically hundreds of millions of people could come, and I think theoretically that many people could come and, and apply. Um, obviously, they don't in practice because of some of the obstacles you described. But um, the truth is the vast majority of people that have come to Europe in recent times um, were in places of safety already. It may not have been a very nice place in a, in a camp in Jordan or Lebanon or living in the suburbs of some rundown town in Turkey. Um, but that is where most people, they have not been in immediate danger of their lives. And I don't think it, it's, our, um, it's our place um, to, to bring them to Europe. Um, they have lives in the countries they are in. I mean, we, we all think that poorer countries should become as rich as us as quickly as possible. And as, as I've already said, taking their most dynamic people is going to hinder that, not help it. Um, you know, they, are, they are, I mean, if, if a racist government was elected in France tomorrow um, and expelled its minorities, then we would, I think, and should, accept as many minorities as could make it to, to, to Britain. Um, yeah, then eventually the French government would be kicked out and, and life would move on and they would, they would go home. That is the kind of um, circumstances that, that these laws should, should enable us in, in extreme circumstances. And if we are a neighboring country, then we should respond generously and appropriately. Uh, but we do not want to encourage mass movements of people across the world. And I do think that the, the um, I was at a conference the other day, and um, people were talking, it was on refugee crisis, people were talking so blithely about um, moving people around, like sort of First World War generals, they were talking about, well, there's a youth boom in the West Balkans or in parts of Africa, and we have these ageing societies in Northern Europe, why aren't we just going to move these people from the West Balkans and plonk them in, in these rich societies? This is, you know, there is no such thing as society thinking. There is such a thing as society. Societies are not just random collections of individuals who happen to live in close physical proximity. You know, they are based on, on patterns of trust and cooperation, and ha habits of trust and cooperation and familiar familiarity and, and, and history and language and culture. These things are real. Um, and sometimes, you know, the, the academics, mainly on the left, talk like kind of Thatcherites, there is no such thing as society. They are sort of universalist individualists, and I think this really doesn't help if we're trying to think about uh, how to produce, how to create a better world. 
Do you want to have another go, and then David can have another <laughs> yeah, go, and absolutely. then we'll open it up to <laughs> absolutely. Okay, to so 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 let's let's address that point that many of these people are not in immediate danger. Well, actually, it's, I mean, it's not 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 in fact the case that under international law, people fleeing persecution are obliged to seek refuge in the first country they first safe country they they pass through, um, but. You know, you have to look at the what concrete realities are here. I mean, if we look at the, the Middle East now, countries such as Jordan, Lebanon, Turkey, they're facing enormous strains from you know really quite large numbers of refugees. For to expect those societies to continue to bear that burden without further kind of massive problems erupting in the region, making things even worse warehousing people in those countries for years on end, that's not a, a good solution for those people. Um, I read, I think, a stat the other day, I uh, can't say where it came from straight off, that I think in Turkey, you know, half a million children of, uh, of refugees are effectively getting no access to education. Well, you know, if you were a parent in that situation where you, know, you thought you, you, you're there with your family, um, you're perhaps not recognised as a refugee, actually, by the Turkish government. Um, in that case, would you want to move on to, to, to move to somewhere where your children and your family had a future? I think you probably would. Um, and there's also the fact that, you know, Tur I mean, Turkey has now, I think in the last 24 hours or so, it's, it's closed its border um, with, um, with, with Syria. It doesn't recognise um, Kurdish refugees fleeing um, from ISIS as, um, as genuine refugees. Um, so it's not the case that, you know, David talks about these people are already in a safe place. Well, they're in safe places that are, from many, many points of view, deeply unsatisfactory places to be. We, in Europe, we are you know, among the wealthiest societies in the world. Um, and the places where refugees are currently concentrated are often among the poorest countries in the world. The places where there are lots and lots of refugees are Pakistan um, and Turkey in particular at the moment. Um, we have an obligation to share, do our share of bearing the burden of looking after people and helping people to rebuild their lives whose contract with their state of origin has effectively been severed by the persecution that they, they've suffered. Um, that's been the tradition since the 1951 convention. I don't see any reason to abandon that, con that, that, that principle now. But what we do need to do is to make sure that they, they don't fall as a burden, as a cost, on the first countries of entry, which are often the, the poorest states in Europe, or the states which have you know, undergone the Euro crisis and so on, Italy and Greece. Rather, we have to put, it, put in a system whereby those people who make it to Europe um, get fairly distributed across the continent. Um, now, that's obviously, and we've heard quite a lot about this already, that's obviously going to be something which faces profound political difficulties. There will be opposition to that. There is opposition to that. But the fact that there's opposition to the right and the moral policy doesn't 
mean that it ceases to be so, nor does it mean that we should cease to argue for it. Well, I mean, I think, you know, European countries have different traditions, different histories. Um, as, as Matthew said, uh, Ivan Krasdev has written interestingly about East Europeans and how much more homogeneous those societies are and how much more uneasy they feel about um, taking um, refugees. And I think we should have sympathy for that. Um, if those countries like Germany, for their own political historical reasons, want to be very generous, then good luck to them. Um, we are doing, uh, we are carrying burden. We're putting two billion dollars uh, into the camps um, on the grounds that we should try and keep, uh, which is the conventional wisdom, by the way, amongst all people in the <coughs> refugee field. We should keep people as close as possible to their countries of origin when there is a, what we hope will be a temporary crisis. Now, because we no longer have a global superpower that, that gives us global order, maybe a lot of these conflicts are going to go on for longer, which is why we have to get better and more expert at making these camps like proper, decent, small towns that people might have to live in for several years. And it is possible to do that. There are examples of best practice. We need to change the rules, too. I mean, the UN, what is it, UNHCR, um, is still run in many respects by rules laid down in 1948, 1949. Um, there are, for example, hundreds of teachers, Jordanian teachers in, in sorry, Syrian teachers in the camps in Jordan and Lebanon who are not teaching the, the children there from, from Syria um, because they're not allowed to under the old rules. And we've just got to get uh, cleverer about, uh, smarter about how to run these places and massively invest money in them. Um, it's true, these people, I mean, one of the reasons for the movement was that people had lost hope that they could go back home, the conflict seemed to be dragging on, the entry of Russia meant there was a whole new stage, uh, and people gave up and thought, well, I'm not going to go back to my country, I, you know, I might as well try and get into the, you know, the, the golden triangle of Europe. Um, and for the sake of these countries, um, and also for the sake of our own countries, I mean, potentially, there are huge problems integrating people. I mean, we've, we've had historic problems integrating certain communities in Britain already over the last 60 or 70 years. Uh, to have you know, hundreds of thousands of people coming from one country, uh, they will tend to live in the same place initially. That, you know, we will have um, a serious parallel lives problem um, in, in Britain replicated again. Um, and I do think uh, one of the reasons why people in Britain have been... Um, have been amongst the least keen to accept large numbers of refugees, and why I think the government is right to, to place most of the emphasis on investment in the camps, is because we already have very historically very large levels of conventional immigration into Britain. And as I think the, the example of Australia shows, um, Australia has actually been quite open on the refugee crisis recently, and that is because people in Australia, because of the relative draconian controls that have been imposed, uh, in the last year or two, they feel that they are in control of their own borders, so they can allow in uh, a certain numbers of, of refugees. I think people here don't. When people feel secure that, that their governments are able to, to control who moves across their borders, then they're more likely to be generous. And I think if, if we're not generous here, it's because we already have very high levels of, uh, of conventional immigration. Well, thank you, both of you. Um, I think it's time now to um, open things up. I will stand up because I'll be better able to see which of you are putting your 
hands in, in the air. And I'll take uh, a number of um, comments or questions at once and then ask um, our, our speakers to respond uh, 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 to them. But, um, and we'll be able, I hope, to, uh, to take a few <coughs> rounds of, um, of comments and questions. But I'll ask you if you could possibly be brief so that we can get in as many people as possible. Question. You have a question, Daphne? Yeah. <laughs> uh, you can go first. May I? <laughs> Thank you. I have a question, a question for you. Mm -hmm. um, you. You spoke about insecurity. So it seems to me that um, immigrants and refugees, the insecurity that they pose is either financial, so basically they claim benefits, etc. That's one argument. And the other is terrorism. However, we have seen the data that um, it's hardly immigrants that actually claim benefits. It tends to be actually um, British people that claim more benefits than immigrants, at least that's what, or that foreigners, that's what some data shows. And secondly, terrorism, both in the UK and in the recent French attacks, was actually homegrown. Um, so why is it necessarily that if we limit refugees or limit immigration, that we are going to limit this insecurity that, that, you, that you propose? Um, hold your answer, David, and we'll, okay. uh, uh, we'll take that. Among others, there's a question here. Yes, sir. This is <coughs> Mr. Tavisovartolo from the South African High Commission. <coughs> um, <coughs> excuse me. I, I've listened to, 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 to this dialogue. Um, I happen to have been a refugee myself. Uh, could you speak up and maybe... <coughs> uh, so, 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 I happen to have been a refugee myself from South Africa. <coughs> so I know the nature of being a refugee. It's so difficult to leave your country and just go and dash over to Europe or sink in the seas or cross your borders. There is so much that ties you with your family that you cannot just go out for. It, there must be a pushing out effect that takes you out, out there. Coming to the narrative of, of, my, of migration, I think migration is a phenomena uh, that, that will always come. It's just that how pragmatic we approach it in terms of the change because of the resources in the world does not, are not unending. An, an the, 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 the resources get scarce and people are dependable. The world is dependable on one another. But as long as we look from the realist point of view and look at the world and not envision the future, we are going to be impulsive in our approach and look at it in a reactive way. How do they hurt us, other people, when they come to our country? But not forgetting what has happened right through the history, I'm sure each and every one of us here has been a migrant from one point to the other. Thank you. Thank you. <coughs> Um, David spoke about um, in the last few sentences of his talk um, that we have a huge amount of immigration into our country. I think I'm right in saying it's only since 2005 that immigration has outstripped emigration. So in the last few years that we've become a net, um, have a net increase of people. I just wondered whether or not we should put that into the pot in terms of thinking about what's happening in our own country, what the conditions are that might mean that less people want to leave and more people might want to come. Thank you. Uh, yes, there are many parts of London and other large cities from which English communities have been uh, almost eradicated. Do the English people not have a right to defend their communities against that kind of eradication? Thank you. 
Yes, I would like to say something about um, sending money uh, to keep people in camps. Well, for a start, we don't know where the money goes. And we hear stories about people staying in camps and not having a future whatsoever for years on end. Uh, I heard something about people being in camps for over 10 years. And those people, they want to be like everybody else. If they want children, they have children. So, you know, how do you manage that? It's, it's all nice, but, you know, uh, you have to give them hope. Not, not just money, which is going to go, we don't know where, really. I, I, I just can say for more about the pragmatic approach and the fact that sort of the, the uh, countries like Saudi Arabia, Yemen, Oman have taken no refugees, none, zero. And even if they do get there, they have zero work rights, same in, in Turkey. So whilst I agree more with Chris's point of view that should be a bit more welcoming and incorporating refugees, I think that should be fused with an approach to pressure those countries and movies who are the most able financially to take their fair share. I mean, it's somewhat hypocritical Saudi Arabia to take none and Europe's better brunt when refugees would probably from Syria go to Arab countries where they're most familiar with. Please speak up, by the way, because yes. we don't have mics around. So just, <laughs> so. Yeah, just uh, a couple of points. I mean, firstly, uh, I'd really be interested in how you square meeting our legal and moral obligations with the fact that most people don't want that, and I, I agree we should meet our legal and moral obligations, but I think that you, uh, the guy back said is relatively popular in, in a lot of European countries. And secondly, I was just wondering, is the fact that up until 1939, many cities in Central and Eastern Europe were multi-ethnic, remotely relevant in this debate? Um, I think I, I, I'll ask our speakers to respond, but don't feel obliged to answer each of you to answer all of the interventions uh, that we've heard but i'm starting with eric and working across and if you're fairly concise uh, then we'll be able to take further rounds of, of questions yeah i mean i don't uh, have a huge amount to say since a lot of the questions were on the normative part of the debate just to say that on the net migration i think the on the chart it, it was sort of from the early 90s that the number of immigrants started to exceed the number of immigrants. So that net migration figure really refers to uh, immigration minus immigration. So it is, it's, it's, we really dated that from the early 90s, and then by the time we get to the 2000s, it's about, yeah, it's about sort of 250,000 or 300,000, so. Yeah, I mean, there's this familiar point about, you know, if, if, if everybody in Britain read, read The Guardian and kind of just looked at the facts, then uh, everything would be fine, and they'd realise there was no, no threat at all, and they'd, they'd uh, welcome, you know, more or less open-door immigration. Um, I don't think that is true. Um, I mean, I don't think people get the facts uh, completely wrong. Um, they, and, and a lot of this is not about facts. It's about anxiety about change to societies, over rapid change to societies, whether it's from refugees or from conventional immigration. Um, and I think people are perfectly right to feel that. Um, we do have very rapid, you know, historically unprecedented change in many of our big cities. And, and on, on the point of, um, of the economics, well, I was in Germany uh, last week uh, talking about the refugee situation there, and Germany is still taking four to 5,000 refugees a day. Um, 
and this is going to create a huge political crisis, I think, in Germany. I mean, a, a party of the sort of respectable right, I think, is bound to emerge in Germany as a result of this crisis. Something like CSU nationally, it may even be the CSU itself, which would end the agreement in, uh, made in the 1970s. It would only um, stand in Bavaria. Um, anyway, I, I was looking at some data on the qualification level of people who are coming to Germany, and contrary to this idea that most people are coming from Syria are kind of engineers and doctors and so on, I mean, a, a, a few of them are, and the, the ones that we see on our television screens tend to be the better educated because they can speak English or German. Um, but actually, about 8% of those that have arrived in Germany in recent months have a university degree. About another 10% uh, have some sort of technical or vocational qualification, and about 80% um, have only basic education. So um, the idea that this is a sort of cost-free benefit to, to, to Germany, well, perhaps in, in very many decades' time you might be able to argue that, but you certainly cannot argue that in the short term. Excellent, thank you. Um, yeah, it, it, just a comment, I think, to, to address some of the points. It seems to me that the debate has taken a very black and white angle. We should welcome all refugees and everything will be fine because we don't read the data, right? Or, no, we should have a really intolerant, they eradicate <laughs> our society. Surely there is, I mean, I think, realistically, we do have a legal obligation with the European Union to address this phenomenon. We, phenomenon. we do need to do something. It's a, it's, it's a problem that exists and we need to do something. At the same time, um, we also can't take clearly. I mean, if you look at, to take it back to the far right, if you look at the, the terrorist attacks, um, there was talk of a fake Syrian, Syrian passport. One of the attackers in, in the Bataclan entered with a fake Syrian passport, and uh, apparently one of these people crossed through Greece, uh, Leros. So there is there is a dimension that is very practical. This is exploited. We might you know take them all in, and that would be great. But this issue is exploited. Perhaps what we should be discussing is what could be concrete viable policies. Um, to, at the same time, be inclusive, but also address the phenomenon, rather than polarizing the conversation well, into, no, we should have them all, no, we shouldn't have any. what the British government is doing, um, spending what is $2 doing? billion dollars on the count to try and make it better for people to stay there. And that seems to be a very sensible policy, while taking some of the most vulnerable people to Britain. That seems a perfectly reasonable policy. Any alternatives? <laughs> no doubt there are. No doubt they could take 40,000, 50,000 rather than 20,000. But I mean, there is a policy. To say there, there is no policy, I mean, that seems to be a middle ground. I mean, lots of people would, would be saying the government shouldn't be doing anything. Um, but, you know, I mean, I think there is a relatively generous middle ground on this that is reflected in our current government policy. Matthew. Um, well, I'm just picking up on a couple of things there. I was in Germany two weeks ago, and some of the German diplomats made a few interesting observations. One is, and I think David's right on this, that they initially overestimated the skill level of the incoming Syrian refugees. And I don't want to reduce the, the, the debate to the technicalities of what these people got. But, you know, there's, there are a few points that came out that were interesting. That was one of them. Secondly, that there's now, I think it's fair to say, a consensus among most ordinary Germans, but, but also, I think, increasingly the German elite, that Merkel wasn't, I don't think, right initially to make this quite assertive stance of saying, you know, essentially, <coughs> you are welcome, we will do this, we, we can do this, that I think there's been quite 
quite a negative reaction within German politics to that, but also increasingly the public. And I think thirdly now, a sense that the numbers are not dropping as much as they had expected <coughs> during the winter months and increasingly talk around not Syrian migration but Afghani migration and North African mi migration over, over the next few months into spring and summer, which of course impacts on our own domestic political debate. We've got a referendum coming up, you've got David Cameron and his team trying to figure out when is it best to hold that vote in a way that avoids some of the issues that we're talking about. But the reality, from a policy perspective, you know, is that this stuff is unprecedented. I mean, it is unprecedented. You're looking at, I mean, take, take Birmingham as an example. You had, in one weekend, 70,000 refugees uh, and migrants turning up in Munich, which is, a broad, broad to, broad, broadly speaking, the size of Birmingham. 70,000 in a weekend. Well, what do you do? from a policy perspective. I mean, this is unprecedented. You don't have a, a guidebook that charts out you know, how, how you can manage this. Nor do you have, I think, a, um, a reliable sense of how on earth the public will respond to this. It's quite clear to me, at least from the polling and the survey data, that people aren't just going to go along with the current trend without exhibiting some form of political expression or otherwise, whether it's marching with Pegida, whether it's voting for Le Pen, whether it's um, shifting European politics in general to the right. Because if you look at Europe right now, you know, a lot of my friends on social media who um, were very initially enthusiastic about welcoming uh, the refugees are also voting for parties that in Europe now are really nowhere to be seen. I mean, the centre-left in European politics is, you know, next to nowhere. I mean, Holland is leaving. Um, and is, you know. So I, I just wonder where the political response on the left is going to coalesce, because I think at the moment, the real winners in the polling and also in, in the elections will almost certainly be the right, and not the conventional mainstream right. Chris? I think there's a... I think there's, there's a real oddity about having this discussion in the UK. And we had a gentleman over there talking about you know, English communities being displaced and, uh, and so on. Um, but we're talking about refugees and asylum. And as I indicated earlier, actually the number of refugees that the UK takes is absolutely tiny as a proportion of the population. Effectively, the UK does its utmost to, to keep refugees out. Its Syrian resettlement <coughs> offer is absolutely tiny. And in terms of migration flows to the UK, asylum is a tiny factor. Um, so I've got um, the figure here, I think. Yeah, only 4% of migrants who enter the UK in a year are asylum seekers. So. It's not, in the, in the whole immigration picture for the UK, asylum is not a big issue. Now clearly, in Europe, this summer, it's been a big issue. I applaud the, the gesture that um, Angela Merkel made. Um, may not have been you know, politically 
the most brilliant move for her as, you know, as, a, as a pure politician, but morally I, I applaud it. But I think it was predicated on the idea that other countries would share, take a share of the burden, and it would not just fall on Germany and Sweden, effectively, to carry the burden that those refugees would be fairly distributed across the European Union. Well, our government, and David thinks that they have roughly the right policy, our government effectively said no. Our, and I think Theresa May said not in a thousand years to uh, any scheme for a, for a more equitable distribution of refugees across the European Union. We could do more if we were willing to cooperate with other states to put in place a fair international, could be a regional scheme, could be an international scheme for dealing with people who are displaced by persecution and violence. But we're unwilling to do so, and our state, which effectively does nothing, effectively, in terms of refugee numbers, David's right to say it does uh, quite a bit in terms of financial aid to people in camps in Lebanon uh, and Jordan and elsewhere, but our, our state effectively does nothing in terms of migrant numbers. So it's very odd, in some ways, that they have such a prominent place in the, in the debate in the UK. And I think there's a reason why they have such a prominent place. It's because if you go and look at the front page of the Daily Mail or the Daily Express, the archetypal immigrant is the asylum seeker, even though the asylum seeker is completely unrepresentative of the immigrant population. Before we move on, I'm just going to sort of take advantage of my position here to sort of highlight something because it's I think what's come out extremely clearly is the disagreement on the panel over ethics and over policy but I also want to highlight a certain disagreement that I see actually over um, over the causes of the um, the, uh, the causes which underlie the rise of the populist right um, and at the risk um, a considerable risk of um, a simplifying presentations which already simplified complicated positions, I'll say that sort of Eric is saying it's the numbers stupid. <laughs> and David is saying uh, um, perhaps uh, uh, David and also Matthew to an extent are saying it's the numbers but it's also the ways in which the numbers are seen to threaten um, uh, social and cultural bonds. Uh, um, and, uh, and Daphne is saying th the numbers in themselves actually don't, aren't that important. It's the ways in which politicians and institutions respond to them. And of course, these different analyses have extremely different policy and ethical implications attached uh, to them. But um, uh, there's a gentleman there, and then... Uh, uh, yes, 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 I see you all, and I'll try to get as many of you in as possible. I'd just like to add, I think Angela Merkel's comments are considered to have been irresponsible on the issue. I think nobody's really mentioned the issue. We are, I think, already the second most crowded country in, in Europe in the, in the developed world. I think we closely follow Holland. What about you know the simple practicalities of education, hospital, places where are all these people going to live? We all sympathise. 
nobody's really touched on, on the point, which is the sort of conflict in Syria, Libya, etc., which is the underlying cause. We need to treat that. Um, and I do agree with David Goodhart. I think that it's the perceived wisdom from the UN and from the UNHCR, I believe, is that refugees should be kept as closely to their own country, uh, uncomfortable though it is, you know, they should be kept in camps as near to where they've been displaced from. Thank you. Helga. Uh, I would like to add something to the numbers. You'll have to speak up a bit. I, I would like to add something to the numbers uh, because I think it's, it's not the number now. Many people are scared what's, what's coming next. Like uh, I'm from Austria and I know that the German debate. So people say, okay, we can handle it now, but we don't know what, what will be next. Like Egyptians, Egyptians coming to the end, I mean, the East is in a crisis. And I think this, uh, many people are concerned about that, and not only people who tend to the right uh, are just scared, and nobody has an answer, because we don't know what's, what's, what's coming, what's, what's happening within the next five years. And the other point I would like to make is that uh, people are very uh, disappointed by ruling parties and by the European Union. So the, the feeling is, this was a crisis, or is a crisis, but the European Union and the ruling parties are not able to solve the crisis. And this adds to the fear, and this is a big problem. Thank you. So, me? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, what, what I wonder is, is if there's any data very recently, because this is quite a new phenomenon this year, really, in the media, on the extent to which the migrant crisis has become a proxy for Euroscepticism, uh, uh, not just in the UK, but across Europe. Thank okay. you. Sir? Um, the title of this talk <coughs> is Europe's Migrant Crisis and the Populist Right, but we're getting more into the migrant crisis and less into the populist right. The, now, the early um, slides and data showed some interesting facts, one of which is that the number of immigrants in the community doesn't count. It's, it's the rate of change. Mm -hmm. And also there were figures on certain um, European governments and, and how popular the right-wing parties are. Hungary being a very interesting example because I think the Hungarian government, which is massively popular, displays a number of unpleasant characteristics. And I'm particularly bearing in mind under whose auspices this lecture is taking place. So I would like to hear more debate about the rise of the right and immigration and the migrant crisis and how that might develop and how things could be changed to avoid the emergence of particularly nasty right-wing parties. With all due respect to what we're speaking of tonight, which is migration, I'd very much like to hear how we address uh, that which causes the migration crisis, which is the, the violence and the persecution that is rife in the world at the moment and from where we've come. Thank you. Uh, yes, madam. Okay. Um, I've just got a question for David. Um, <clears throat> sorry, I've just got a question for David. Um, you talked about um, a refugee camp in which people could stay for several years. I was wondering what success would look like in terms of that investment. Yes. Um, I just wanted to know David's opinion in relation to the past history of Britain uh, regarding slavery. And when you say that one should never encourage mass movements of people across countries, 
Do you include that as well? <laughs> well, I'm sorry, but you did move masses of people across countries for your own benefit, so maybe all after that. So, so you think I support slavery, do you? No, I'm just saying that in light of that. Well, I'm going to a dark question. Yeah, um, I do. Many, um, many similar points on the. Please speak up, please speak up. Yeah, a very similar point to the last lady about how do you feel about Britain migrating massively to other countries in the past and now having this wealth due to that massive immigration problem in our British Empire. Another point is how do you feel about, you know, you said that people should, skilled people should be or remain in their countries to build their country. How do you feel about those people dying and not being able to rebuild anything because they've been beheaded or murdered, raped, enslaved, or you know, all those horrible things that are going on? And something someone mentioned Saudi Arabia, it has an appalling record of human rights right now. Probably they killed more people than ISIS and they just sentenced someone to renounce Islam. So, um, those few points, they could be answered Thank you. Uh, did you have a question? So, you? Yeah, yeah I, I, mm -hmm. do, I do a special uh, suggestion. And, uh, You'll have David, to speak up, I'm yeah, afraid. Yeah, a good question for David. Uh, I think, David, we, 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 so far we fighting or searching, so searching with the symptoms and not the roots of the problem. When we take example, the case of Syria, I remember 2011 when our Prime Minister Dave Scarborough said that uh, uh, Assad has to go and other side of the Atlantic, Obama said there's no future Assad for new Syria. So that time, would we create a problem? So how can we solve that now? Are we helping our friends Saudi Arabia and Qatar, so-called Sunni Shi'i things? And we bring weapons, money into their country to destabilize their country. So we know Syria has 40 years history of Assad regime, but that country was stable. So if you want to remove a regime, then we have to use the tools that needs to be not to destroy the country, but at least in, in political pressure. So I think where we are today, what we cost is aftershock of David Cameron and Obama. Thank you. I'm going to take two last questions or comments, and then I'll come back to the panel. You I, and then you. Yes, I have a question. Maybe it's for Daphne Moves, because I understand that in Greece, a lot of the police and army force votes for Golden Dawn, actually. And if you have numbers on that, and if you also have how common is that sort of protecting forces go through extreme right and what that makes on the policy on the countries. Yeah, and I think the moral case for me, it really picks up on the... You have to speak up. Sorry, the moral issue for me, um, which I think Daphne pointed to at the very beginning of her talk, was the well-being of the people involved. And so it's difficult to have this sort of conversation without actually the clear policies of how that well-being would be protected. Because to have this discussion outside of any sort of policy discussion leaves it a theoretical discussion of which we have no concept of the implications. Mm. Um, you know, are the people going to be housed? Are they going to be educated? 
what is the well-being of everyone concerned and how is that best done? That seems to me the question. And I agree about the causes, of course, because that is a whole other issue about how we comport ourselves in the world propping up regimes and selling demands. I totally agree with that. But I mean, given the crisis now, what are our policy? Because we don't seem to have any. Thank you. Uh, Eric, shall we work okay, across yes. again? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, some very, very good questions, and I lost track of who asked one. But first question around uh, numbers versus economic forces. I want to kind of defend Matt and I on this. That, uh, I mean, some of the research, there's a paper by Haymuller and, and uh, I think Hopkins and that summarized about 100 uh, papers on this, uh, on what drives anti-immigration sentiment and so forth. And I think that um, it's really the cultural drivers that seem to be more important rather than particularly personal economic circumstance. I'm not denying economic factors play a role, but I don't think they're playing the predominant role. But I do think, obviously, in some cases, mm -hmm. certain variables might come up. One thing I think is important is to distinguish Western Europe from Eastern Europe. So I think the drivers of the far right, populist right, are different to some extent. Whereas Eastern and to some extent Southern Europe, it's issues around wounded national pride from unfinished business from the past collaboration with the Nazis, you name it, it's to do with uh, national pride. In Hungary, it, it was the, the loss of two-thirds of their territory and the recovery from that. I think these issues are not playing in West. In Western Europe, it really is about ethnic change and the, the decline or the perceived decline of the ethnic majority and the angst that that causes, I think, would be primary. And therefore, I think numbers are important. Very quickly, just on Syria, because this, uh, this is a, a, another horse I've been riding, which is I think there's just not been enough discussion about, parti not partition, but about consociationalism and federalism. Power sharing has to be the solution in Syria. You're not going to have a unitary state, and yet every, everybody, the Russians, the Americans, everybody's banging on about keeping Syria one. You've got to have separate areas, initially, that have their own sovereignty, that come together to in a confederal manner. There has to be that. And that, until that's discussed, uh, the situation is simply not going to, to fix itself. OK, um, uh, to answer a couple of points. Um, this question of historical responsibility. Yes, I do think that Britain does have some special historical responsibilities in the world, arising partly from our colonial history um, and indeed from slavery. Um, and that has indeed been reflected in the history of British immigration policy. Uh, we had an open door to all former um, colonies, um, members of the Commonwealth between 1948 and 1962, and in the whole period of post-colonial immigration, that continued to be reflected in our immigration policy. I think currently we have particular responsibilities arising from the fact that we um, were complicit in the most appalling decision uh, taken by any serious state in the last hundred years, which was the disbandment of the Iraqi army after the invasion of Iraq in 2003, from which so much of the current chaos flows. I mean, still a huge amount of ISIS, all those extremist groups are driven by um, Sunni, of, you know, highly trained Sunni officers from the Iraqi army. Um, so. I do think we have special responsibilities uh, in this story, but um, we do not honour our responsibilities by further destabilising already weak countries by allowing their most dynamic people to, to come and live in Shepherd's Bush. Um, now, I think there are lots of things we can do, and we are doing some of them. I also think that we should 
think much harder. I mean, the one success, in a sense, of the Iraq war was the successful safe haven in northern Iraq and, uh, and, and the, the Kurdish areas of northern Iraq. And why we didn't try and implement something like that, I mean, uh, you know, no-fly zones, I mean, controlling those areas from the air, um, I, I don't really understand. I mean, I, I haven't studied the, this whole story of the Syrian conflict enough, but I mean, we must become much better at safe havens, and we must become much better at running civilized, temporary cities for people to live in when these disasters happen. Um, secondly, but briefly, the point about the, the, the camps that, um, that somebody asked me directly about, I mean, I, I, I don't know a huge amount about them. I know that uh, uh, Paul Collier has written very interestingly about them. I mean, you should have, have a look at what he has said. Um, there is actually one particular camp um, that Collier himself has been involved with in Jordan, right next to this camp. This is one of the camps, begins with Z, I can't remember his name, anybody know? The Zatari, the Zatari camp, yeah. Uh, the, the Britain has invested a lot in it. It's very big, hundreds of thousands of people live there. It is a, it is a small town. Next door to the Zatari camp in Jordan, there is an industrial estate, which only about 10% of its capacity is being used. Um, Collier's idea, backed by King Hassan of Jordan, is that the, the, you know, the Syrian you know, people in those camps should be able to work in that industrial estate, indeed should be able to create businesses in that. So the people in Jordan would get some benefit. Obviously you can't do anything in these countries unless the host population goes along with it. So you have to take those people with you. But it is possible to do it, like, you know, as that example, if it works, I think would show. Final point, briefly, um, back to... Um, dear old Angela Merkel, um, I do think um, yeah, her, sort of, I mean, her moralistic unilateralism in this issue has made the situation a lot worse. I think that's unquestionably the case. Um, and don't forget, it was an entirely unilateral decision. And Germany always talks about itself as being such a good European, but she just off the cuff made this decision, which had huge implications for all other European countries, particularly those that surround Germany. And Germany has track record here too. Unilaterally recognizing Croatia in 1992 was one of the sparks that, that created the, um, the, Croatia, the um, Balkan War then. Um, now, but, but one reason I think that she did it, I mean, apart from the whole, the whole psychodrama of German um, 20th century history, the fact that she was actually responding, I think the day before she made the announcement that there had been an attack on a, a um, refugee hostel in East Germany, uh, but another reason she did it is that she was thinking Balkans. She was thinking the Balkans' refugee migration to Germany. They had a very big inflow, as indeed we did in the later 90s. In the early and middle 90s, there were a lot of people that came from the conflict. About two-thirds, three-quarters of them have gone home. And I think she was rather naively thinking um, temporary haven. And this is something we haven't actually talked about. I and mean, I think you know, we should be thinking in terms, if, if people do come to Europe, and there may be circumstances in which people you know, don't have any other option, should come to Europe, um, then we must think in terms of, of temporary haven, that people come here for five years, you know, they recover, you know, they're traumatized, or perhaps they need, they need medical help, um, but then go back. A lot of people went back to the Balkans from Germany and indeed from the UK, and I think we should think in terms of people coming here temporarily. Then I think populations will be much less anxious about uh, accepting perhaps higher numbers of refugees if they knew that people would go back eventually. Otherwise, I think, you know, as I said earlier, the, the analogy is with the US-Mexican border. It, you know, we have, I mean, Chris talks about the border 
being securitized. Most people think we don't have a bloody border there at all. I mean, people fl have flowed in, you know, a million and a half of them have come in the last um, year plus. And it looks as if this is going to go on year after year after year. So it's not the fact that it's securitized, it's the fact that it doesn't exist. Um, and, you know, people should be applying from outside. We should set up systems that allow people who are in serious danger uh, where they are to apply from outside. Uh, otherwise, we will have something like the US-Mexican border on our European doorstep and, you know, like Donald Trump in America, will be a constant source of inspiration and support for the far right in Europe. Thank you. Yeah, we seem to be having two separate debates. The one is the moral and the other is the far right. And I'm, I'm going to, to answer your question on, on, on the far right because that's what I, what I work on. And, and drawing on, on Eric's point, I mean, I think this is what I meant when I said it is a false dichotomy to distinguish between cultural factors and economic factors. And this is not necessarily, these are linked. This is not two different things. It's not two different dimensions. The fact it's not simply cultural. When people vote, a lot of people who vote for the far right vote for the far right because they worry that foreigners are going to take from their welfare provision. They're going to take benefits away from them. And this is a lot to do with the way that the far right parties themselves are capitalizing on the insecurity of of, of the people. And the economy is something that we do need to, to, to I think we need to emphasize. For example, if you look again, if you look at the Paris bombers, it, it's been noted in the media that a lot of these, these people who perpetrated the attacks were actually disenfranchised, poor people who live in very isolated, um, uh, one very isolated Belgian neighborhood, but also, um, you know, grew up in a in very disadvantaged position. So maybe we should be putting more um, emphasis on, say, educating and not disenfranchising um, certain members of the public that are likely to be radicalized. These people, you know, for all the cultural factors, they were actually secular um, until very recently. They went to um, they went to clubs and they got drunk and they had alcohol and they smoked, uh, apparently. So, uh, you know, they're not. It didn't seem to me that they were very um, religious to, to start with. Um, secondly, on your point about the Golden Dawn, your question. Yes, um, we do have data. It's it's not that formal because obviously, you know, the, it's a very tricky that the police and the army are voting for the Golden Dawn. There's even, not even voting, but there's actually some, some, some sources indicating that um, members, ex-members of the army are actually Golden Dawn active. Um, I do have some, you can, we can discuss it later, but it's not, it's, it's tricky. But based on, on, on the data in, in the book that I published recently, we do know that Golden Dawn supporters are mainly disillusioned voters with certain right-wing ideas. So they tend to come from the right. So the former senior democracy voters that have been disenfranchised um, and or, or former Laos voters um, in that respect. So, you know. Well, I think there is a bridge between the two discussions uh, and that centers on the disconnect between what the average voter is feeling and thinking when it comes to migration and what these particular parties are saying. One of my frustrations about the debate on the populist right, which a lot of left commentators use, is that they say, oh, well, if we don't accept people, or if we don't follow this line, then the far right will come and control elections. And I, I think, you know, they are doing very well in the polls, but, you know, Europe, has, in general terms, is not about to kind of become kind of controlled by far right parties, even in Greece. I mean, Golden Dawn is on you know, 7%, right? And it's had the worst economic catastrophe in modern economic times, combined mm -hmm. with the, being the front stage of a refugee crisis. If you ever wanted perfect, perfect soil for the resurrection of Nazism, you got it. 
except it didn't happen. Mm. Um, but I do think there's, there's an interesting point, um, and you know, five minutes until wine time, so I'll make it a quick one. Um, there, is, there is a really interesting point, though, between what voters were told about migration and then what came afterwards. And I do think that we have to reflect on not how we're getting it wrong in our response to this issue, but actually how political leaders consistently got things quite wrong. I mean, take Britain as an example. If you go back to 2001, 2002, the, the, the debate over migration was actually very different. People were told that, well, post uh, the accession of Central East European states, around 15,000 people would come into the country. It turned out now there were up to 380,000 per year. And I think what you have among a majority of the electorate is not a desire for ultra-conservative policies, but a desire for something far more simple, which is control over national borders and uh, national community, right? Um, the flip side to that is that the what you might call the kind of ultra end of the liberal argument is that they can't give the end vision of what it looks like. So we can sit around and complain about the populist right, but it is giving voters a vision of what they want to achieve, which is more restrictive policies, put the borders up, and reassert control. The problem with what I like to call the Tony Blair argument is, well, globalization's just happening, refugee crisis is just happening, get on with it, we better adapt to it. Well, what does that actually mean, right? So if we took Merkel's argument and we applied it across Europe and everyone said, well, you're welcome, well, what would that actually mean? Right, just think about it. If Cameron said it, if Holland said it, Merkel said it, borders come down, what would it mean? Right, it would be a completely uh, infeasible uh, scenario. We would not be able to cope with that. Sorry. It's not true. Okay, well let's take let's take Sweden as an example. Sweden, Sweden. I'm sorry, but I think if I can just if I can just quickly finish it up. Let's just take Sweden as a quick example, right? Sweden followed the German response and said, "Yeah, okay, let's 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 pursue this line." And I think you know expected the numbers to be far lower. Sweden now, from top to bottom in the uh, political sphere, has said, unfortunately, it can't accept any more because it doesn't have the resources, right? So it's a very fundamental, practical point around what European societies can and cannot support, and. Ultimately, we're not talking about just a Syrian crisis. We're talking about Lebanon, Libya, mm -hmm. Somalia, North Africa, Egypt. You have to get realistic about what that more liberal policy response would entail over the next five years, ten years. Chris. Okay, so I just want to say a couple of things. First, about camps as a solution, and second, about securitization of the border. Um, so on camp, so supposing you have a short-term conflict um, with where everyone can see the end in sight um, and the prospect for refugees is to go home and rebuild their countries very immediately. I think in that scenario, then there's certainly you know, a role for well-run refugee camps. But we all know, I think, that the, the reality in many parts of the world, in Pakistan, potentially in Turkey, around Palestine, is not of people <coughs> staying in refugee camps for a 
short period of time, but rather of people growing up and living their entire lives in refugee camps. Well, that's not um, a very appealing prospect for anyone. It's not any kind of a life, and it's a way of incubating further problems. There's also the issue um, in relation to the Syrian conflict that most of these refugees are not in refugee camps. Okay, they're dispersed around the wider society in Lebanon, Jordan, Turkey, and elsewhere, and have you know a somewhat pariah status, a rather you know um, unsatisfactory status within those within those societies. So, given that, you know, holding up refugee camps as a solution to those people's problems just isn't adequate to the measure of what's going on. Um, David said that, well, you know, we don't really have a securitized border. Okay, and we have an open border, and that's why all these people are coming across. Well, the reason they're coming across in the way that they are, they're coming from North Africa, they're coming across the Aegean, is precisely because we have a securitized border. If, they, if we didn't, if there weren't penalties placed on carriers, on airlines, if visas were available, then people would not pay sums of money which vastly exceed the cost of an airline ticket, to get on flimsy boats where they're likely to drown. 3,000, maybe 4,000 people have drowned so far this year as a, result of the, as a result of the securitization of the border, which is our policy. And it's not the only way in which our policies harm people. So we also commission states at the frontiers of the European Union, states like Morocco, to commit human rights abuses against people who are wanting to enter the European Union. How good do we feel about that? Um, we commission them to commit acts that, you know, if they were co committed within the European Union, um, perhaps with the exception within Hungary, there would be a public outcry about them. Um, what, what do you mean by that? What, what kind of acts are you talking about? Morocco is uh, stopping people getting onto boats to cross the... Because actually one I'm, of the... One I'm talking about the camps where would-be migrants live, <coughs> being invaded by Moroccan troops, they have, they're having their possessions, um, oh, right, okay. destroyed, people being clubbed over the head, that kind of thing. Because one okay. of the success stories of control is the Western Mediterranean, 40,000 people were crossing every year in 2006, it's now 3,000. I mean, it is possible to control these movements. It's a success for control, but it's not a success for human rights. David, no, well, that, that's a different point. I'm sorry, David, you're going to have to hmm. hold it. I'll make point. No. <laughs> okay, so, 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 so if I can just have, just have one sentence. One sentence. Okay, I, I, think, I think the answer to these problems lies in, in, in us committing ourselves with other states to put in place a feasible international regime, um, rather than saying, holding up our hands saying these flows are impossible um, and taking a thoroughly unilateral uh, stance in relation to them. Unless we adopt a cooperative stance, which many states in Europe have failed to do, um, then we simply you know, leave ourselves open to chaos and to much greater problems further down the line. Thank you very much. I hope no one came this evening expecting consensus over what <laughs> the answer was, because if any of you did, you will leave extremely disappointed. But rather, I hope uh, uh, you will go away um, as I will, having, um, having learned and thought a lot, both from the e extremely, extremely fruitful and thoughtful questions and interventions from the floor, but especially from our five excellent 
speakers, and I hope uh, you will join me in thanking them all very much indeed.